0: Well, good morning again to you out at home and here. Um, we're going to be finishing this morning our three-week series called The Gift of Jesus Christ. While the gifts of Jesus Christ, the gift who Jesus Christ is to us, you, you know, you just can't sum it up in three weeks, just want to let you know that. Um, but we just have been focusing on three aspects of the gift of who Jesus Christ is to us, um, represented by the three gifts given to a wise man in Matthew chapter two, verse eleven, and those gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And and those of you who have been following on the last three weeks know that we've been working our way backwards through these gifts and their significance. Uh, we started first with the gift of myrrh, which really signifies the humanity and the death of Jesus Christ. That He came as a man and He came to die, and through His sacrificial death, men's sins were forgiven. The second gift we looked at was frankincense, which really spoke of the deity of Jesus Christ. Not only was Jesus a man, he was the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was God in the flesh, as John Uh, 1-1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, that's verse 1 and 2. And then he skipped down to verse 14, and it says, and the Word, that Word that was with God, that was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man. God came down to us. And lastly this morning, we move to the final gift, the gift of gold. As many of you know, the significance of gold um, is... Is, is is it's significant thank you for my amazing vocabulary um, but i mean when you get married you usually put you don't usually put something of um you know, cheap value on someone. I mean, obviously, <coughs> when you first get married, you really don't have much of things of value, and so it starts out that way. But the idea is that you're going to give your bride your best, or something significant and meaningful, and gold often represents that in rings that we give towards one another, or some other kind of costly metal. Uh, but we know that gold is a very valuable commodity right now, as the economy is going crazy, and, and things are you know, going in a K shape recovery and all this stuff, you know, you've been hearing it for years, buy gold, buy gold, buy gold, and and why would you buy gold? Because it's a valuable asset. I'm not, this is not an infomercial, I'm just saying why they're saying that, because gold is valuable, that's my point. But that was what was presented to Jesus at his birth, the gift of gold, along with frankincense and myrrh, and these gifts obviously would sustain young Mary and Joseph who were very poor during very difficult times as they had to go from town to town and running away for their lives basically. But the gift of gold was given to kings and that's who the wise men were asking for when they came to Jerusalem. When they went to Herod they said, hey where is the king of the Jews that's been born? We're looking for a king that we might go and worship him. And when they found him, they presented gold to him. And because of its great worth, because it was costly, because it was rare, gold was a gift associated with kings, with rulers. If you remember back in Genesis 41-42, when Joseph became the second in command of all of Egypt, remember that Pharaoh put on a... uh, a robe around him. He gave him his signet ring, and he put a gold chain around his neck, signifying that he was was a ruler. He had power, and that's what that signified, that gold chain. You flip forward to the book of Daniel. How many of you remember back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, when Daniel, uh, they had the writing on the wall, and King Belshazzar couldn't figure out what it was. Daniel came in, gave him the interpretation, and as a reward, he was rewarded with the rule of, of the nation of Babylon, which that night would be destroyed, but he gave him again a clothing, uh, a clothing him in royal, royal robes, and, and he gave him a chain of gold. and so that chain, that gold signifies ruling. it signifies a king. And he became third in command that day. If you remember. What happened that day is that um, he became third in command because the other king had actually had died, and so there's significance in that. I won't go into this morning, but but the idea is that kings had gold around them. Gold chain was important. If you remember about maybe uh, King Solomon, what it said of him, Second Chronicles chapter nine, verse twenty. Another amazing king in Israel's history. Actually, it says in Second Chronicles nine, verse twenty, it says all. Of All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the the house uh, of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. So his interior decoration was pure gold. All the wood had gold all over it. His drinking vessels were gold. And it says silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. And that signifies the point is that gold is costly the gold is a symbol of kingship king Solomon was not drinking out of a red solo cup right there was so much gold in solomon's kingdom it it just represented his glory It, it it exemplified his his wisdom and his rule it was everywhere it's interesting when the lord returns we find out that his kingdom is the pavement will be gold Everything will be, it'll be streets of gold in that city in, this, in the, uh, the second, when the new heavens and the new earth come. But kings had the finest of everything and gold symbolized that they were at the top and we saw in Matthew 2 that the wise men coming from the east looking to worship the king of the Jews gave gold to Jesus and Jesus was indeed a king. But the important thing for us to know about Jesus is the, he wasn't an ordinary king. He was a prophesied king. He was the prophesied king. The Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the chosen one of God. That's who Jesus was. His kingship and his kingdom had been prophesied about years before he came. Jesus was no ordinary king. He was the prophesied king. And just to give you a few examples of that, which you can jot down in your notes if you're taking them. First off, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. This is what's known as the Davidic covenant, for those of you who want to know that. But God is speaking to King David, basically in this chapter. But chapter 17 takes place about 1,000 years before Christ. And King David of Israel is compelled at this point in his rule, in his reign, his ascension on the throne as he's sitting and he's established. He, he's compelled in his heart to make a house for God. He wants to make a house for God because you see, his house was super awesome. Like I described, like of Solomon's, David's was all decked out and he was living in with all the accoutrements of a king. And, and here God's place, the tabernacle, this building made of poles and skins of animals, but on the inside, precious gold and different compartments, basically, leading up to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. He was outside, and David's looking at this and saying, this is unfitting. Here I am, a king, and I'm below this king, below God, and my dwellings are better than his I want to build a house for him. And so he goes to Nathan. The prophet says, hey, I'd like to do this. Nathan says, go for it. Well, God speaks to Nathan in the night and says, no. David's a man of bloodshed. And we know David has Saul's slayed his thousands. David slayed his tens of thousands. And so the house that's going to be built is not going to be built through bloodshed. The Lord made that clear. But David did receive a promise from God David was really bummed that he couldn't build that house for God but God said to David he went on to promise that David you're going to have a son you're going to have a descendant who will build a house for me and David did have a son named Solomon remember Solomon King Solomon the wisest king to ever live wisest man to ever live obviously apart from Christ and he did build that temple, it was Solomon's temple, and it was magnificent, one of the wonders of the world, overlaid with gold. They said when it, it sh- the sun shone on it in Jerusalem, it just beamed and everyone was just almost blinded going there. It was just fantastic. Solomon did build that temple. But while that temple was built by one of, Saul- one of King David's sons, David's sons was not the one that God was talking about there. God was, God was speaking of a, of a greater king, a greater house. That's what he was speaking about there. And we know this because of verse 11 in 2 uh, in, in, in Chronicles chapter 17. It says, when your days fu- are, are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, he's speaking to David here, he says, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. See, God is speaking of a king whose kingdom would not end. And so although Solomon did build a temple, although Solomon did rule, Solomon died. His rule ended, and the descendants of David, they died as well. And so this was speaking of a different son. This was speaking of a, a different temple, a different house that would be established, an everlasting one. And we see this in verse 13 where it says of the son, I will be to him as a father and he shall be, be to me as a son and I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who is before you, speaking of King Saul, whom God took his kingdom from him. He says, I'm, this son, I'm not going to do that to but I will confirm him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. What God is saying to David is that there's one who's coming whose rule will be everlasting. This is the promise to David, one of your descendants, David. This is going to happen, and this is why when you open to Matthew chapter one, how many of you open to Matthew chapter one? Have you? How many of you've gone? Ah, oh, I just can't wait to study the Word. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with Matthew, the beginning of the gospel. You open it up, and it's all and you know, and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and and you just go, oh, man. (laughs) How many of you got there? You ever wonder why that's there? This is why. Because what you find out there in Matthew chapter 1 and also in Luke's account is that you have a royal genealogy from Abraham to David and from David down to Joseph and by way of Joseph to Jesus. The royal bloodline. Jesus, the direct descendant of David, Jesus was the king who would come and rule forever, amen. The son of God whom it said would be a son to him whose kingdom would never end. And this is why Jesus is called and they cried out to him and called him the son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's a messianic phrase saying you're the one. You're the Christ. You're the king. You're the one who's going to come and redeem us and save us. And so the promise was made to David. That's one example. One more. A little while later, later, 300 years later, Isaiah, the prophet, around 700 years before Christ, also spoke of the Messiah to come and we read this last week. Elder brother Gary read it last week. Isaiah 9 that says, when he comes, the oppressed have a great reason for rejoicing. The oppressed in the land of the north of Israel, and by the way, the land of the Gentiles as well. So just basically, everybody has a great reason to rejoice. And Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 say why there is a reason for rejoicing. For, uh, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, how many of you heard that over and over, and you're just going. Kind of... For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the what shall be on his shoulders? And the government shall be on his shoulders. What does that mean? There's a reason for rejoicing. Is that one day everything is going to be ruled by this child, by this son, The government will be on his shoulders, and Isaiah tells us who this ruler will be, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's who's coming to rule. God is coming to rule, to establish his kingdom. This child, this son, is God in the flesh. And what kind of government is it going to be? We just went through an election, and half the nation is going, and the other half of the nation is going, yay. What kind of government is this going to be? And of the, of the increase, it says there in verse 7, of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, it will be an all-encompassing, never-ending kingdom of peace ruled by the descendant of David who will rule with justice and righteousness forever. That's what's coming. That kingdom is the kingdom that is coming and that kingdom perfectly reflects the king of that kingdom. All wise, all powerful, eternal peace. So Isaiah speaks of the king that would come and a kingdom that will not end and there's so many more examples of prophecy. I'm not going to go into them this morning. But Jesus was the prophesied king. That's the point. He was the one they were waiting for. A king was born that day in Bethlehem. And not just any king, the Messiah. And the king, when he came, he came into this world for a purpose. He came for a purpose. Jesus was like light piercing darkness. This is the imagery that John tells us in other places in Scripture. It was like light invading darkness, it was like life coming to a dead world this is what it was the kingdom of god invading the kingdom of satan the kingdom of man he busted in although shrouded this time he came declaring the kingdom to the kingdom of satan and to the fallen kingdom of man that the kingdom of god is at hand it is here jesus came and said. There's another kingdom, not of this world, and it's here. And the reason why it was there is because the king of that kingdom was there. He was at hand. And we see Jesus came with a purpose. You ever wonder why Jesus came? to go, oh, to die for our sins. Yes, to die for our sins. Amen. But we see that the main message of Jesus was that he came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He came proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, in other words. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1:14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching. What was he preaching? Proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, how is he proclaiming the gospel of God? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 8, 1 says, soon afterwards he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 4, uh, 43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for I was sent for this purpose. That's why Jesus came. He came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And if you notice, that is exactly the message that he brings. It's called good news, the gospel. What what in the world does that mean? He says, I must preach the good news. That's why I came. I've got to preach the good news. This kingdom invaded this world. He says, there's good news for everybody in this other kingdom. The good news is that God has come to man so that mankind may have peace with God before destruction and judgment comes. There's good news. You can avoid what's coming. There's good news. You can have peace with this kingdom, the kingdom that is going to continue to grow and envelop and overtake everything an everlasting kingdom. It's coming. There's peace. You can come into this kingdom. You can be a part of this kingdom. Abandon your kingdom. Come to this kingdom. Good news. And the offer still stands. Jesus offered a pardon to his enemies. That's what's going on. Jesus came to parley. How many of you seen those those uh, like war scenes where they parley? Basically you have like a a, you know, a giant army on this side and then an even more formidable army on this side and, of course, always the smaller army army wins. Not so. Like, the bigger army usually wins and so the bigger army comes, so they, they meet in the middle and what they're doing is they're trying to establish terms of peace. And so the kings meet in the middle and they speak and they say, hey, listen, uh, we're gonna crush you and everybody who's here and we offer peace and here's our conditions. And that's what Jesus came to do. He aimed, came to offer parley with the world, to offer peace from God. And we see this declared right in the beginning of the gospel. Matthew chapter, uh, Sorry, Luke chapter two, when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds, remember an angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds, what happens? The, the heavens open up and they start praising God, all the hosts of heaven start praising God. You know, all the Christmas stuff we're, we're, we're talking about. They start praising God. They say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, right, and good towards men. And that's a difficult translation because that's not exactly what it says. The ESV has it right. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he, on, with whom he is well pleased. It's not just a, a blanket peace that everybody automatically gets. He's saying it's peace that's offered to those with whom God is well-pleased. You've got to ask a question. What's the next question? Who is God well-pleased with? And that should start ringing a bell if you read the Scripture. Matthew three seventeen. the Father declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. He says that again on the transfiguration On a transfiguration. Listen, the Father is pleased in the Son. And the idea is that peace with God is offered and comes with those who make peace with the Son. Have you made peace with the Son? This is the only way that man has peace with God is through Jesus Christ. Think about this. This is what we are as Christians. Christians aren't people who just you know, hey, I'm going to join that church and sing the songs and do that. No, the king came to us. And he said, either I'm your Lord or I'm not. This is unconditional surrender and I've given everything to make that happen. Do you surrender? It's lordship, salvation. It's not a good feeling you get or an emotional high, it is an unconditional surrender of your very life and soul to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see? This is what we're talking about. When the Japanese surrendered on the deck of the the carrier there and they made terms, the Americans weren't going, hey, you know, would you like to... um, you know, what do you think? Would you like to come, you know, submit to us? No, it was like, here are the terms of your surrender. Boom. That's the only choice. This is what Jesus has come. People don't want to hear this. But that is why Jesus came. That you would have peace with God through the Son. First John five twelve says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. John three thirty five 35-36 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul says in Romans 5:1, We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen? So the good news of the kingdom, and it kind of has a double-edged sword there, the good news of God is offering a pardon through His Son, the King, Jesus Christ. And those who receive the Son in his terms have peace with God. Those who reject the Son have no peace with God. Jesus said, I have come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus did this in two ways. And I want to focus on this in just the next couple minutes. In two ways. He described the kingdom of God to mankind. And he also demonstrated the kingdom of God to men. See, the king was prophesied, he came, he came for the purpose of the kingdom, but then he actually did something about it. He proclaimed it, and he demonstrated it while he was here to show us that it's actually a real kingdom with a real king, and these are this is real. And I want to quickly focus on those two aspects. First, the description of the kingdom. Some of you ladies, how many of you studied... The uh, parables earlier this year, the parables of the kingdom of God. And you kind of went through them and you're like, okay, what in the world is all this about? Kind of confusing, isn't it? A little bit. But the parables of the kingdom, and most of them, the key phrases, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Remember that? And what Jesus is doing is trying to explain to us in this world what a kingdom that is not of this world is like. And so he uses pictures and images from our world so that those who have ears to hear will actually hear, and most don't, and understand and believe him. And so he uses the description, these stories, and he described the kingdom of God like in Matthew 13, like the parable of the sower of a seed. He says the kingdom of God is like a a guy who went out and sowed seed, and it landed on four different types of ground, and only one of those grounds, uh, one of those types of grounds, actually bore fruit. The rest didn't. And what Jesus was saying is that, listen, I am spreading the message of the kingdom of God, and very few of you will receive it and bear fruit. Most of you will not. You will reject it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Very few enter. The rest will perish. Matthew 13. Later in that chapter, the parable of the weeds among the wheat. Jesus describes the kingdom of God being like a, a, a farmer who went out and cast a seed, and a crop of wheat came up, but in the night an enemy came and put and put like imposter seeds among it, and they grew up together, and you couldn't tell the difference between what was wheat and what was weeds. And my son John was, you know, working farming, and some of you guys have done that, and, and you guys hate roguing. Roguing is just walking through fields and looking for weeds among wheat, and you're you come back and your jeans are torn up and, and your hands are all blistered and bloody because weeds are not fun and neither is weed, I guess. But the idea is they're very indistinguishable until the weed actually starts to come up and show itself. And the idea that Jesus is communicating is that there are imposters. There are people who think that they're of the kingdom. The kingdom is like that. People who think that they're true, but they're not. And what's going to happen is at the end of the age the angels are going to come and they are going to gather the wheat into the barn and they're going to take the wheat and they're going to cast it into the fire. And this speaks of what happens. Eternal life in judgment. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom. Jesus also spoke in Matthew 13 about the parable of the mustard seed where he said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now, it's just something so small and insignificant and what he's saying is that, this, that something so small and if insignificant is going to grow up big enough, and he, and he uses the example that even birds can land on it and all this stuff and provide shade. The kingdom of God is going to grow giant, and it's going to be massive. It's going to grow. You can't see it right now, but it's coming, and it will envelop everything. And he does the same thing with a parable of the—sorry, um, uh, my brain is not working— that's why I write things down. But the, the same principle is the, the parable of the, uh, the yeast. It's hidden. You can't see it, but the effects of it are going to consume everything. The kingdom of God is at hand and it's not going away. It's going to take over everything one day. It's coming. The same principle about leaven there. Or about the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. What Jesus was saying is that a person found a treasure hidden in the field. A, per, a person found a pearl of great price. And because it was so valuable, they, they were willing to give everything to, have, to obtain that. And he's saying, those who know what the kingdom of God is and they know its value, they will lose everything to obtain it. And that's what Jesus offers. Unconditional surrender. To, to keep your life, you must lose everything your life. If you do not lose your life, you're not getting the treasure. It's not that you can buy the kingdom. The way up is down. You lose everything. And you find that when you lose everything, God takes you and raises you up with him and you have everything. You have life. But we don't like to go through door number one. But Jesus also spoke about the expectations of the king. I'm just going through this real quickly because he proclaimed the kingdom. The expectations of the king. That they have to reflect the king. Its subjects reflect the king. That's, that's what the kingdom is about. It's full of people who reflect the king. Who have his nature, has his, his interest, his heart in everything that's going on. They must reflect Forgiveness and mercy that they received from God. Remember that scary parable? He uses the story of a servant who had been forgiven of an insurmountable debt and then he goes away and then he starts treating someone who owed him something so piddly with great contempt and was just harsh with them, all that kind of stuff. The king hears about it, calls that guy back in and says, Did I not forgive you of something you could never repay? What are you doing, doing that to this person? Shouldn't you show the same mercy and grace that I gave you to them? See, Jesus is painting a picture about the Canaan, and he said, listen, the king took him and put him in debtor's prison until he paid back everything, and the, the point is that he can't pay it back ever. He has no means of paying it back. That's a picture of hell and what Jesus is saying. He went on to say that unless you forgive one another from the heart, so my heavenly Father will do to you. That's the kingdom. There's no place for unforgiveness in the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke of the kingdom in Matthew 20. Am I making my point? Like a landowner who hired workers in his kingdom at various times in the day, but they all got paid the same at the end, and it speaks of God's benevolence and grace in giving salvation both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and also to people who have believed short and believe long. Jesus spoke in Matthew 25 of his kingdom being like 10 virgins. Five of them went out without their wick, uh, virgins waiting for their, their bridegroom to come, basically a wedding party. Five of them like didn't bring their oil and their lamp and all that type of stuff, and the other five did. They had a wick, they had oil, and they went. and, they, and the king took, The bridegroom took a long time to get there, and so they all fell asleep. But when he came, the ones who were ready, the ones who had the wick, the ones who had the oil, the ones who were ready, they were allowed into it. The others were not. And the idea is that there are those who look like they are of the kingdom, but they aren't. And those are who are truly are the ones who are ready and waiting for the king when he returns. Those are the ones. Jesus also spoke of the kingdom of God being like a king who went on a long journey and he gave his servants, three of his servants, different sums of money to invest while he was gone. He was gonna come back and give a reckoning of that. What happened? Two of them invested it double the money when he came to return. One buried it. And what happened to that one who was buried it? Buried it? What he had was taken away and he was cast into outer darkness. The other two were rewarded with greater things. You see that Jesus came preaching about the kingdom. He came describing the kingdom to us. The kingdom of God, his king. And he went village to village describing. And he says, this is why I've come. I want to pardon you. I want to pardon you. Will you surrender? Will you believe upon me? And he made the means of doing that. He died for the sins of people and he rose again. And Paul described and says of this great salvation in 1 Corinthians 1, 13-14, he says that we are to give thanks to God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. See, kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Jesus came so that we would be delivered. What a gracious gift he's given us, the king of kings. But he didn't also teach, and this will be very short, he also proved it. He also demonstrated the power of the kingdom. You can sit there and talk all day about the kingdom of God and what it's like, but what's the proof? And he proved it by his power over this kingdom that his kingdom was greater. The book of John devoted to the miracles of God. We won't go into all of them, but Jesus changed water into wine, he healed a nobleman's son, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda who had been infirm for 38 years. He fed 5000 people miraculously, he walked on water, he healed a man who had been blind since birth, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And earthly kings as powerful as they are on this earth had no could not do any of that. The other Gospels speak of Jesus' power over Satan. We see this in Luke 4, through 36 There's a man in the synagogue who had an unclean spirit, and he kept crying out when Jesus was around, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you're the Holy One of God, and the demons knew he was, and they were freaking out. Jesus rebuked him, and it came out of him immediately. What power! No one could do that. If you remember also in Matthew 8, Jesus freed two demon-possessed mans. In the other Gospels, it just talks about one, but there were two there. They had a legion of demons in them. They went around running and uh, running around naked and cutting themselves. They were out of their minds. No one could do anything to restrain them. They would break all the things, and yet when they saw Jesus, they cried out, have you come to send us to the torment before it's our time? And then Jesus cast them out into pigs and they, all of them went out and the pigs went off the cliff and died and these two men were in the right mind. Jesus has power over Satan. Mark 3, one 11, it says, and whenever unclean spirits saw them, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. You see, not only did Jesus teach about the kingdom, but he demonstrated his authority over it and we see this in the other gospels' accounts. his authority over sickness, authority over demons, over nature, his power to forgive sin. Power to raise the dead. On that day in Bethlehem, a king was born. Unlike any other. And he came to offer peace with God. If you're listening, he came to offer peace. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey at the the end of his ministry. That's a symbol of peace. Kings would ride a donkey. They weren't out for war. They were there to make peace. And the peace came through the cross. And the king of Jews went willingly to the cross. Through his death, the power of sin would be broken for all who would repent and believe. Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The king came to bring peace, church. And his offer still stands, amen? He offers peace to anyone who would humbly, unconditionally surrender their life to him and believe that he died on their behalf and rose again to give them life. Jesus came the first time to offer peace to mankind, a humble king riding on a donkey, born in a manger, humble. But the next time Jesus is coming, The prince of peace will not come to offer peace but to establish peace. Big difference. Right now, the offer still stands. He's offering peace with God to all who would repent and believe. The seed is being cast and the hearts are laid bare. Which one will bear fruit? But the second time, he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a war horse. Blood to the bridle. The grapes of wrath. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 speaks of the result, the end of his first coming and his second coming. What results in all this? He says, and being found in human form, being Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. That's his first coming. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is what? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. in The first time he came to offer peace. And that's the good news we share this Christmas season, amen? We offer the peace of God. We who've received the peace of God Go and spread it freely. Don't be ashamed of this church. Jesus said, Man, do you not, those who are ashamed of me and my words in this wicked and adulterous generation, I'm going to be ashamed of you at the coming. In other words, true believers aren't ashamed. Doesn't mean we're all Billy Grahams, it means that we follow the Lord, and when He gives us opportunity, we, we, we share. We proclaim through our living and through our actions, through our words, our teachings, and our deeds. Lord help right but his second coming there's not going to be a choice for people every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord they will all bow but we've already been doing it amen we've already been worshiping him that's going to be an awesome day for us it's like every the whole universe bows before Jesus it's like can't wait for that one amen bring it on I want to see the world bow before the king don't you but not before, Lord, please, before those we love come to know him. And that's our role. He's commissioned us. The king has said, you're mine. And now you, as, as the father has sent me, I'm now sending you. That's your mission, church, is now to spread the gospel, the good news. So much there. But church, there is a coming king. And may we continue to devote ourselves to being those who are ready and waiting for his turn, his, his return with our lamps ready, our wicks lit, our ready to light, right, so to speak. Busy about his work is the idea. Faith without works is what? Is dead. We're not saved by works, but if you're saved, you're working out those good deeds that God's given you. Being ready. And this time is such a, Difficult time because everything in our society says don't do anything. Stay away and listen, we've got to be about the Lord's business. Yes, be careful in all those things. You don't want to, gosh, you guys are all adults. Figure that out. Listen, be busy about your king. Be concerned about his orders, his commands, what he's calling us to do. Love one another and if something else gets in the way, remove it. Follow him. Be busy. Love one another. Get in each other's lives. Lord, help me. Amen. Proclaim the good news. Live the good news. Because our King's coming back. Let's continue to pray that many will come to know the love of our King. Amen. Because in that surrender is <laughs> life. Amen. Life. The things we were holding on to, we were going, oh, that was silly. This is real life. How awesome is that? So let's continue to truly pray, church, for the lost during this season. Pray for each other. King of kings, let's worship you. Have our hearts this Christmas season, Lord. Capture the hearts of those around us. All glory and honor to you. Amen.